You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamou, a gerontologist, digital nomad, certified sports nutrition, and breathing coach. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook, Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming energy reboot program for women over 50. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would really appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find us too. This is a really small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women, help us grow stronger, get our voice out there, and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. I am super excited to announce that the Energy Reboot Program is here. It's starting February 25th, 2023, and this is a four-week program for a peri or postmenopausal woman to reclaim her energy back. We cover a ton in this program, and I invited six special guests to give their expertise on hormones, nutrition, sleep, light, sex, and motivation. And the best part of this program is that we get to meet up every week to discuss your progress to meet our guest speakers, and to find support with other women who are going through the same thing as you. All the details are on the hackmyage.com website, but if you've got any questions, just reach out to me through social media or the website. This is really a special chance to biohack yourself to boundless energy. Guess what? Today is the only day you can grab the special Valentine's Day two-for-one offer. That means that you can jump into the four-week group program starting February 25th, 2023 with a friend and split the price. So go to hackmyage.com forward slash energy reboot program and all the details are there. So use the code VAL at checkout before it ends tomorrow, February 15th. Now let's start the show. This episode is sponsored by Oxford HealthSpan, the creators of my favorite supplement, Primadine. I admit it, I am a total supplement junkie, but if I had to choose only one, it would be this one. And it's because Primadine is spermidine, and this is shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. Now, this is a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. So as we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and waste, which isn't good for our cells, our health, nor our longevity. So we need to clean it up. And if you want the research on this, go to OxfordHealthSpan.com and you can see all of it, showing how spermidine supports our brain, our hormones, and our heart health. And another great side effect is stronger hair, skin, and nails, but also longer eyelashes. But, you know, the real important reason why I love Primadine is because I have never, ever received as much feedback on a product I recommended as I have with Primadine. Literally every week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And... Most of the time, it's about improved sleep. And even some of you told me it's reversed a bit of your gray hair too. So I find that totally amazing. So I can honestly say with 100% certainty that Primadine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. 
And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on OxfordHealthSpan.com. Just be sure to get back to me with your results too. Now enjoy the show. So my guest today is not only intelligent, talented, and can think unconventionally, he's a great educator too, but someone who is also kind and humble and can express very complex systems in terms that we can all understand. We're meeting Dr. Dale Bredesen to learn more about his groundbreaking research in dementia. It was, it was a real honor to have Dr. Bredesen on the podcast back in 2021, and now a double honor to have him on for a second time to discuss one of his most recent books, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. And we also want to cover a little bit more of his latest research. Dr. Dale Bredesen is a scientist, a researcher, and an expert in neurodegenerative diseases, particularly Alzheimer's disease. He's published over 200 papers, uh, which many of them you can find in PubMed research. And in 2017, he wrote a groundbreaking book and New York Times bestseller called The End of Alzheimer's. And then several years after that, wrote a follow-up book called The End of Alzheimer's Program. And last year, he wrote The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, How Patients Recovered Life and Hope in Their Own Words. Dr. Bredesen is a professor at UCLA, but he's also taught at UC San Francisco and the University of California, San Diego. He directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before going to the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. Now, most doctors and experts in this field say that there is no cure for Alzheimer's. But Dr. Bredesen blatantly says that Alzheimer's is absolutely reversible and preventable. He's going totally against the grain with his research, which he's been working on for decades. And he's been consulting patients too, been told by their doctors to just go and get their affairs in order before they die because there is nothing they can do to help them. But now Dr. Bredesen is not only giving these people hope, but actually a future that they can look forward to. So now without further ado, meet Dr. Dale Bredesen. Welcome. Thanks so much, Sora. Thanks for having me on. Is there anything, I kind of added some couple of things to your intro, Is, did I get it right? <laughs> yeah, you got it right. And yes, we are, uh, our research over the years showed something that others are still finding hard to believe. And in fact, I just got a, got a nasty tweet from, uh, from a physician, a well-recognized physician who treats patients with Alzheimer's in the UK and claims that absolutely nothing could be done except give them some drugs that don't work. And how dare I say anything? Well, you know, read our studies, read our published trial. We had a very successful trial, which is freely available online to anyone who wants to look it up. It's in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease from last June. In fact, it's interesting. It has been for the last several months, it's been the number you look at, the, they have a list of what's most popular articles in of the entire year. It's the number one article people have been interested in. So there's a lot going on. Uh, and there's actually a documentary coming out on our work. Um, and they've got a, I'm apparently I'm not supposed to say who's the narrator, but he's a great guy that you'll recognize uh, who has a fabulous singing voice and he does a great job as the narrator. So I appreciate that he was interested in this enough to do it. Uh, and so should be out in the next, in the next few months and goes, you know, talks to some of the patients and talks to, you know, how were they doing before? How are they doing now? So Zora, let me, can I ask you a question? Sure. Did you, if you read the seven stories of the people in the first survivors of Alzheimer's, were you able to get through all of the seven with no tears? No, of course not. 
I was so touched. Now that you say that there's a documentary coming out, that's going to be so much more impactful because reading their stories is is truly inspiring, especially if you have somebody you know going through Alzheimer's or if you're concerned about this. They they explain how they have their the progression, the degeneration, and then they they come back and then their lives are changed. And it's it's so impactful. So I I would love to see these people's faces and 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 follow their stories. I I, I think this was a brilliant idea. Well you'll see them so the documentary interviews yeah, the documentary interviews some of the people uh, who were in the book, and they talk about their own stories. And I mean, it's, I have to say, it, re- it really touched me because when we got the very first person to reverse her cognitive decline, uh, which was back in 2012, so we have people now over 10 years who have continued their improvement, which is unheard of. Um, she's now, by the way, is patient zero, uh, and she is uh, in the documentary, and she also wrote a wonderful story for the book. Uh, these people continue to be improved because you're addressing the things that are actually causing the problem. And she's actually now a brain health coach and and doing uh, doing absolutely great. So uh, very exciting to see this. And when I started getting various emails from these people, uh, you know, I was so touched by some of these. Uh, you know, you read the story of the uh, attorney from New York, uh, who you know, Harvard graduate, brilliant woman. Um, who now watched her grandmother die of Alzheimer's, watched her father die of Alzheimer's, and now is having problems herself and looking at her children, realizing, oh my gosh, you know, are they going to go through the same thing? And then just the way she wrote about her experience and what it meant to her to improve. And she actually went to her father on his deathbed uh, when he didn't recognize her. He just knew that she was someone he loved. So he would cry when she would come into the room and and hold her but he didn't he didn't know her name and she sat there and said to him you know i want you to know i'm going to be all right and i my only regret is that this was not available when you were having problems because he was then at that point you know ready to die if if you can get through all that stuff without it you know, without it touching you um, then you are a you are a cold person because <laughs> it's really really striking and so I you know got uh, so many of these so I wrote to the, these seven people and I said you know your stories are so compelling nobody out there realizes that in fact you can reverse this problem you can get improvement not a hundred percent of people but many people we have over five hundred now uh, with good documentation we've published a number of papers on this as well. So these seven said, yeah, we'd love to write our stories. Uh, and so they all became uh, part of the book. What was one of them? I don't remember her name, but she said it, she hesitated even in, in writing it because it would bring back some really horrific memories and it's it's devastating. But she, in the end, said, look, this is going to help so many other people by sharing the story. So it's it's fabulous that they are sharing because it is unbelievable, especially if you've never heard this before that you can reverse or you can you know, ha- have improvement or just massively slow this down. I, I I I think it's for a lot of people shocking. When I first heard about you and your book, I I, I it was really new to me, and so I'm I'm glad that there is this documented, but the documentary is going to be even even more impactful and bring more hope, especially if somebody's told you that. Doctor said, "Look, go home and die." I mean, anyone who says, "Look, I've I've gone, I've I've recovered," even if it's one person, you're going to go talk to that person and say, well, "What did you do?" Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, as you say, when you're not ready to see something, and interestingly, one of the patients um, who is a doctor herself 
said people don't believe it because they're not ready to believe it. They're not ready to hear it. But when you actually meet the people and hear their stories, it's just, it really shows you. And then, of course, we have data. We we published the trial, as I mentioned, uh, where 84% of the people improved. Uh, the other thing to know is that people are going about this backwards. There are four stages you go through when you develop Alzheimer's-related dementia. The first stage, you don't have symptoms, but you can all already show often in your 30s that there are changes in PET scans, for example. The second stage is what's called SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. And that actually lasts about 10 years. And the definition of that is that you know there's something wrong. Often your spouse and sometimes your coworkers will know something's not quite right, but you're still able to score in the normal range on cognitive testing. By definition, that's SCI. Everyone who has SCI reverses in our protocol. We, we don't have any problem reversing that. So if everybody would just not wait, get on active prevention, which is stage one or stage two SCI, you're going to do great. Now, the third and fourth stages are where everybody treats it. The third stage is MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And the good news in our trial, 84% of those people got better. We didn't even didn't do it for SCI. We wanted to let people be more the typical uh, way they would be when they present to their neurologists. But even that, which is a relatively late stage, and it's too bad that someone years ago chose the term mild cognitive impairment because it really should be called relatively late stage Alzheimer's disease. It's like telling someone with cancer, don't worry, you only have mildly metastatic cancer. Um, it's a late stage of the disease. And yet we can still get people to improve in many, not all, but in many cases. Then the fourth and final stage is actually dementia. And by definition, then you've begun to lose the activities of daily living. And as you know, you end up uh, at the end where you can't care for yourself, you really can't do anything. And so, and yet we, you know, we've seen people, even in the late stages, improve. I had a wonderful uh, wonderful email from one of the practitioners we've trained. We've trained over 2,000 practitioners in 10 different countries and all over the U.S. And she told me that one of her patients just came in with a MOCA score of 6 out of 30, which is end-stage dementia. Uh, the average for all people with Alzheimer's is 16. So a six is very, very late. Um, and she improved to 13, which is fantastic. So now that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the difference between caring for yourself and not caring for yourself, between interacting with people, being engaged. So just, you know, huge subjective changes and improvements in this particular person. And by the way, the same uh, person who the, the doctor herself is Dr. Sanderson, who's in San Diego. Uh, has started the first assisted living facility using our protocol and is having tremendous results with it. She's actually got her own trial, which is now successful and she's submitted for publication. She talks about in the in the film that the first patient she ever saw, she didn't believe it. She came to one of my talks. She didn't believe it herself. So she said, okay, let me just see about this. She used it on the first patient. The patient came back better and the doctor started crying because Aww. she said she'd never imagined in her life that she would be treating people and making their cognition better. This is, I cannot wait to see this documentary. It's truly mind blowing. I want to ask, so actually you said there were a couple of things that came to my mind. You had thousands of people go through this protocol that you've yeah. created. So about 5,000 is, I think is what was in the book. I don't know what it is now. 
Yeah, and we have we have continued people coming through, but we don't have follow up on all of them. Yeah, that was the question. So yeah, because in the study that you did, uh, you had eighty four percent recovery. I think there was maybe twenty nine people or so, or twenty in- five people in that study. Yeah, and now yeah. we're actually started a larger study at six different sites in the U.S. Uh, now that'll be going on for the next about year and a half. Um, so we'll have a larger randomized controlled trial. But yes, in our proof of concept trial, which was the one that was published, eighty-four uh, percent of the people improved. Incredible. In how do you know how many people are going to be in the next randomized controlled trial? Yeah, it'll be about seventy-five. Okay, and then this study that was is being done in this um, the the doctor who opened up the center where she's doing her own clinical trial. She's do we know how many people? Yeah, hers was also right around 30. And, you know, people have said, well, gee, you know, is 75 enough? Well, here's the thing. Why do most of these drug trials use 1,500 people? It's because to get a statistically significant difference, a difference that you can actually say, oh, yes, this is different. It's such a tiny effect that these drugs have because you're just hitting one thing. You're not treating this, what's actually causing it. It's such a tiny effect that you can't measure it as statistically significant unless you have over a thousand people. In our case, we have a big impact. So even with 25 people, it was statistically significant at less than 0.001. So when you have a big, you know, the bigger the effect, the fewer number of people you actually have to show that you're getting a statistically significant effect. Oh, I'm so glad you explained that because some people challenge me on that. And now I have a great answer. The other question that I have is because so when I was, as I'm reading through the stories, we see uh, a lot of women, of course, because this is a female-centric disease. And when they, in hindsight, some, some of them said, well, you know, I started to have cognitive decline during perimenopause, which is about five years before menopause, around their late 40s. And some of them think, well, I have brain fog, that's menopause. And you mentioned in your in your uh, recode in the protocol that hormone optim- optimization is important. That's part of the protocol. So if a woman is just having a bit of trouble of clarity of mind and memory, how does she know if it's she's just having cognitive issues because of the loss of hormones or is it because of early onset dementia? It's a great question. And you don't know for sure unless you get evaluated by a physician. So we recommend that everyone get evaluated. And so, you know, this is critical. As you say, you know, women in that perimenopausal period, uh, very, very important. As Maria Shriver has said and, and, and others have said, yes, this is a woman-centric disease. It's almost two to one, as you mentioned. So um, it's something that's so critical. And, and you know, what we're saying now is this is becoming optional. As hard as it is to believe that, uh, getting Alzheimer's is becoming optional. If everybody would get on active prevention, we recommend you know, 45 years of age or older, you want to get on active prevention. Check it out. We, we've uh, produced something called a cognoscopy. Everybody knows when you get to be 50, you know, what do you do? You get a colonoscopy. And actually, my wife and I, when we turn 50, we're like, okay, we got to get a colonoscopy. How are we going to do this? So we had his and hers on Valentine's Day. We just <laughs> thought, okay, let's get this over with. Then we'll go out and, you know, go out and have a nice dinner together. So uh, just, you know, get it done. And the same thing, and I have to say, a cognoscopy is much more pleasant than a colonoscopy. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, it's easy to do. It's basically three things and you can even go on like mycognoscopy.com and see how to do it. Number one, you get some blood tests. And unfortunately 
most doctors are not doing these blood tests. So you need to get the critical ones that actually address the things that are giving you risk for cognitive decline. Secondly, you have an online cognitive assessment. It's pretty easy and it takes about 25 minutes or so. And you can see where you stand because this pr problems do sneak up on you. And of course, you mentioned the brain fog. So many people because of COVID-19 are saying, you know what, it's not quite, something is not quite right. And that's the time to get in there and do something about it. Um, at that point, virtually everybody can be addressed very successfully. So why sit there with brain fog and say, hmm, maybe I'm going to go downhill and maybe I'm not. The other key point that you brought up is as you enter the perimenopause period, what happens? Well, you have a period of seven years when you have what's called an osteoclastic burst. Here's what that means. So your bones have osteoblasts that are laying down the bone and osteoclasts that are picking up the bone. And for most of your life, these things work very nicely together. And so they continually make your bones better and better, just like working on your house. You're getting a little demolition here. Now you're putting the next room up. You're doing something here. Now imagine that the people doing the destruction kept doing more than they should. And actually the ones doing the construction never showed up. Your house would now begin to get smaller and smaller. And that's what's happening during this osteoclastic burst. Your osteoclasts taking up the bone are outstripping your osteoblasts. So unfortunately, you know, the, the drug approach is let's just kill the osteoclasts, but that actually doesn't help your bone structure very much. And so during that seven-year period, you are releasing toxins that you have sequestered in your bones for years. And this is why we see so many people during that period. So it's not only the drop-off of hormones, but also the releasing of toxins. So I'm always concerned when someone is having cognitive decline during that period, it suggests that they may have toxin exposure that has been undiagnosed. And so we recommend to people, please get evaluated. And especially if they have a non-amnestic presentation. In other words, about two thirds of people who are headed for Alzheimer's will have an amnestic presentation. Their big problem is learning new things, as you know. But about one third of them will have a non-amnestic presentation. That means it's not so much about the memory. It's about planning. It's about what's called executive function, figuring things out. They'll have, say, have trouble working their iPhone. They'll have trouble working something new. They'll have trouble planning things at a job. They'll have trouble doing calculations sometimes, sometimes trouble navigating. All of these are non-amnestic presentations, and they are typically associated with either toxin exposure or pathogens. Sometimes people have been bitten by ticks, for example, and get Lyme disease or other tick-borne illnesses. So we have a number of people where they get treated for the Lyme years ago. Everything's good, but they don't realize the tick also included other pathogens, Ehrlichia, Bartonella, Babesia, Anaplasma, these sorts of things. And by the way, one of the people who wrote the story talked about hers. She got Ehrlichia. Uh, she, she lives in New York as well. And she also uh, got uh, Babesia. And so she's now, or sorry, Bartonella in her case. And she's treating him and she's doing great. Uh, and she's back out on the golf course. 
uh, you know, hitting golf balls. Uh, she said she has no problem uh, with remembering scores, not only her own, but her the people she's playing with, et cetera. So, uh, you know, all of these things are critical. And this is why it's so important for people to get evaluated, to make it so that very few people ever develop Alzheimer's disease. This is super interesting. I've never heard that we have toxins stored in our bones and then it can release into the system and it's circulating in our bodies once we hit this menopause uh, age and we start to lose our hormones and the and the and the bones i mean i i mean, it sounds like you're heading towards osteopenia uh, osteoporosis that direction right many women do we just have that so we we it, it's not unusual and this is releasing toxins in the, into the body and i find that fascinating and, I, and it's something that i'm sure many doctors didn't even think about when when you're talking about alzheimer's and bioidentical hormone replacement therapy which i recognize is controversial but as far as brain health it is very helpful uh, not only does it decrease that bone resorption it also increases detoxification. So when your body is exposed to toxins, so when I say toxins, there's three groups of toxins that we're all exposed to. And unfortunately, you know, as we, everyone knows, we live in a toxic world. So we are exposed to inorganic toxins, things like air pollution, things like mercury that's in fillings, for example. Then we're also exposed to organic toxins. And these are things like uh, things like the uh, formaldehyde, glyphosate, toluene, benzene, things like that. And of course, in Europe, things are much better uh, with glyphosate than they are in the US, but they're, of course, they're present in both places, but at, at a worse level um, in the US. And then, of course, they're in things like cosmetics. So you got to be really careful about that. And of course, the Environmental Working Group has done a great job with showing, you know, here are the ones that are less toxic. Good idea to stick with those. And then the third group of toxins are actually biotoxins. These are toxins that are made by organisms that we get exposed to. And the most common one is mold. And so there, and there, to be fair, there are lots of mold species that don't typically produce bad mycotoxins. But there are five bad guys. And unfortunately, they're in a lot of our houses. And it's easy to check. Uh, there, there's something called an ERMI score that was actually set up by the Environmental Protection Agency so they can tell you how bad is the mold in your house. So the five bad ones are Stachybotrys. That's the bad black mold that we all hear about, the toxic black mold. Aspergillus, uh, uh, Penicillium, Ketomium, and Wallemia. Those are the big five bad guys. And they make, unfortunately, toxins that damage your nervous system. They damage your kidneys. They damage your immune system. They can even be associated with developing cancers. So good idea to detox and, you know, and just have a, a less toxic lifestyle. And of course, I wrote about this um, in The First Survivors of Alzheimer's to help people to get detox. So when your body gets exposed to these things, it does everything possible to get rid of them. So it literally, it metabolizes them, it you know, cuts them up, it sends them out through your skin. So sweating helps get rid of them, sends them out through your breath sends them out, you're, you're sneezing, um, sends them out through urination, through elimination of all forms. So all of these things are working together to minimize. And of course, one of the things that it does is sequester them in your bones, in your brain, in your other organs. So this is where you can get damage to kidneys, liver, brain, 
etc. Um, during your lifetime. So this is why detox is so helpful and living a relatively lower toxic lifestyle. You're absolutely right. And it, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a differentiation when you say that the toxins are held inside the bones. We know that to- the fat cells like to hold on to toxins and that's the way of protecting us well, from yeah. circulation. So is it different than, than that? Is it in the sense that these are they're they're inside the bone the cells of the bones uh, that's and then it's being released once you release the bones so it's kind of the same principle in the sense that you need to detox because especially I mean, people who are trying to lose weight right that's or do a detox and then they don't do it correctly they're releasing these toxins into the bloodstream and they're not sweating or peeing or pooing and you know all that stuff and it's just kind of sitting there so there's a there's a way to detox as well right. It's a great point. Now, as you can imagine, the fat-soluble ones are more going to be in the fat cells. That makes sense. And the less fat-soluble ones, the water-soluble ones, are going to be more in the bones. So yeah, there are differences depending on which organ. And you're right. People can actually detox too quickly. And we do see that where sometimes doctors will be very aggressive with the detox. And you can unfortunately you know, increase your blood levels while you're trying to detox. So if that happens, back off a little bit. Take it more slowly. And, and in the book too, you get such great resources and the patients themselves give resources on what they've done and who they've seen and what products they've used and brands and all the details that we want when we're kind of going through something similar. But I want to go back to talking about the um, hormone therapies being neuroprotective because as doctors, there are plenty of doctors who say it's, it's neuroprotective, but I understand that if you talk to somebody who's in like a, a menopause uh, society president or something, they they say the jury is still out and that it's still inconclusive and talk about the research or the studies that are being done. And so when will we have conclusions and should a woman going through menopause wait until their definite conclusions before she, optimizing her hormones with hormone therapy for her brain? Yeah, you know, this is such a good point. I think that it's important to talk to someone who really does this for a living, someone who's really an expert in this area. Um, And my source, as I mentioned in the book, is Dr. Anne Hathaway. Um, She has spent her career uh, looking at BHRT and prescribing BHRT to appropriate people. Um, And her point is that if you look at the studies, um, she often quotes one uh, out of Stanford that was particularly revealing, showing improvement in cognition with BHRT. And I think you're going to see more and more of these. The thing, of course, that got everybody off it was the WHI study that came out about, what, now 17 years ago, something like that. And everybody just suddenly stopped. The problem with that study, I mean, in the positive, I should say, is it's huge. It's a huge study. But the the problem with it was it looked at people who were on synthetic progesterones and synthetic estrogens. And there's no question, they, they do not work as well. Uh, whereas the ones that have looked at BHRT since then have found better results. Uh, now, there are all sorts of other issues. You know, do you have a history of breast cancer? Do you have a history of hormone responsive uterine cancer, for example? Uh, you know, how old are you? Now, to be fair, uh, Dr. Hathaway has used this, this approach in people who were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but some people will argue, no, you need to only confine it to people in their 40s and early 50s. So there, there are differences of opinion. And you know, the answer to your question, when will everyone agree? Never. Uh, because it's just not, it's not that black and white. 
So there will always be experts who are saying, well, if you do it this way, and it's going to depend on your genetics, it's going to depend on your history, it's going to depend on your levels, uh, just so many different things that can impact this. So I, I always come back to, you know, if you have no cognitive decline and you are simply there for prevention, you could consider avoiding DHRT for the time being. But if you actually do develop uh, cognitive decline, it's such a critical thing that you probably don't want to leave that one out. Probably do want to optimize your hormonal status because it's one of the most powerful things for your cognition. And that's seen again and again in studies. Yes, it's it's such a personal uh, decision. So I, I highly encourage people to just learn, study, educate yourself. Don't be afraid. Uh, don't just do anything either. I think we're all bio-individual and we all have to understand the risks, the benefits. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. I we're in a biohacking space. This is our 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 people who who are uh, hack my age. We're we're trying to hack our age, and we're all about prevention. So, so we have tend to have people who listen to the podcast who are wanting to optimize their health, even though they're doing pretty well. But we we want to prevent. So that's when I would say, look, encourage you. Even if you don't feel any symptoms, I mean, get your blood work done, do the cognitive tests, just figure yourself out, understand your body, know how it works. And, and we're all about taking control of our own body. Just you are the, 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 the doctor of your own, of your own body. Your doctor is just trying to help you figure things out and navigate the way. So that's, that's sort of my take on, on HRT and just know, just read about it, educate yourself about it, and then make your own decision if this is for you or for not, not in consultation with your doctors. And for hacking, I mean, this, as you say, this is an era where hacking your age and hacking your own medicine and biology and health is so huge. And your, you know, your brain health, uh, your gut health, all of these things. And, the, you know, there's so much now that's available that wasn't even available five or 10 years ago. Uh, things forget, you know, way back when I uh, learned medicine way back in the 1970s, this is stuff that's really available. And so, you know, all the wearables, um, and I don't know how much you've talked about those, but I mean, you can now find out about your own gut microbiome, your telomere length, your continuous glucose monitoring, your heart rate variability, your oxygenation, the stages of sleep, and just on and on and on. So you can really kind of figure out, here's where I stand and here are the things that would be really helpful to me to get optimal brain health, optimal gut health, and so forth and so on. And of course, it makes a huge difference. Um, and it will make a difference in, you know, in your future. And again, we believe that at this point, for people to do the right thing, you can truly reduce the global burden of dementia. And everyone can have a really positive impact on their likelihood of cognitive decline. And to add to that, the protocol that you you give, and you have great detail and how that, that all works, not only in the books that you write, but in on the website, it, it will reduce... As I understand, it seems to me the risk of so many other diseases because you are going to improve your cardiovascular disease just by following some of these things. So it's good for the the brain. It's probably good for the heart. 
and so many other other issues. So I, I, I think there's a lot of benefit, not just for brain health by following protocol, being prevent, preventive with your, your um, you know, just being taking prevention as well. So I want to just discuss a little bit about sleep because you mentioned sleep as well. We, uh, you know, all the gadgets that we use and, and that to try to monitor it. But when I was studying uh, for my master's of gerontology at USC with your colleague, um, Dr. Christian Pike, who's lectured us on, on neurodegenerative diseases, he had to write a paper uh, and I, I decided to, to look at the associations and risks of women going through menopause, sleep disturbances, and dementia. I, I really wanted to cover this because we we know up to 63% of the women going through menopause have issues with sleep. So it's insomnia or trouble falling asleep and rest, you know, restless leg syndrome, all this hormone fluctuates and they're are stopping us from getting a good night's sleep. So it's bad enough that that we feel tired when we're when we when we wake up or we're having all throughout the day. But when we understand the glymphatic system, and this is our, our brain detox mode um, that happens mostly when we're sleeping, I worry that women may be missing out on a really important part of sleep that may put them at higher risk uh, for dementia. So how concerned should a woman going through this menopause transition be about sleep and, and sleep disturbances and her risks of, of developing Alzheimer's? Well, no question. Uh, sleep is critical and critical to get optimal sleep to prevent cognitive decline. So you're right. They, 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 we should be concerned. And you know, you could spend hours just talking about sleep. And of course, there's a wonderful book by Professor Matthew Walker, who's actually just right here across the bay from me over at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, Matthew has written a wonderful book that's, a, that's called Why We Sleep. Um, and of course, Ariana Huffington has also written a very nice book on sleep. Both of those, I highly recommend them. So, no, you know, there are a whole, a whole host of things. You know, number one is that you want to get seven to eight hours of sleep if you can. And I know that's hard for most people. I mean, you know, as someone who was an intern getting virtually no sleep, and I know it, it's hard sometimes to get the requisite amount of sleep. You've got your aura ring on, I see, so you can follow your own sleep. Then you want to make sure you have at least four of deep sleep at least an hour of deep sleep and at least an hour and a half of REM sleep. And you may have a little more. That's just great. But, you know, you don't want to be walking around with five or 10 minutes of deep sleep and 15 minutes of REM sleep. There's something wrong there. And it may then you have to figure out, and it may be that you're depressed about something. It may be that you're anxious about something, as you mentioned. It may be, again, hormones. Uh, and of course, progesterone is critical for optimal sleep. Um, and people who are very low, and we hear this all the time with as you know, estrogen dominance, um, which is a problem, especially in perimenopause, where the progesterone can tend to drop first, and now you become relatively estrogen dominant, and you often have poor sleep. Often, you know, can wake up, and and so and then, of course, melatonin is falling as we get a little older, as we get into our forties, um, and then so you may be a little bit low on your melatonin. So again, the good news is there are all sorts of things that you can do, and of course, for many of us. The worst possible thing tonight, being up late and then going straight from talking to bed. That's that's not a good thing to ramp down. You don't want to have your Wi-Fi on. You don't want to have blue light. You don't want to have all these things going on when you're getting ready. Force common for people to wake up in the middle of the night. And one of the common things is ruminating. And you hear this all the time. And in fact, in that particular case, um, L-tryptophan, very good. Uh, you know. 300 to 500 milligrams of L-tryptophan, very, very good. Get this over the counter. 
very good for people who are ruminating, who have that, you know, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., where they wake up and they just start thinking about everything in their lives. So that's another thing. So the good news is all of these things are addressable. Um, and of course, a lot of people point out, hey, we're, you know, we're exposed to way too much in terms of EMFs. So yeah, turn it off at night. Um, don't be having your phone close to you and things like that, um, because it's it's just going to contribute to poor sleep. And shut it down. You mentioned the glymphatic system. You know what is it that shuts down your glymphatic system? It's noradrenaline. Adrenaline. It's that anything that's going to shut down your glymphatics. So you got to let your glymphatics do their job. Move that stuff out. Cleanse your brain every night. That's also why it's good to have a fasting period. And you don't want to eat right up until bedtime. Stop at least three hours before. So that now in the middle of the night, you're activating that autophagy. And again, you're cleaning things. Um, it's amazing how putting this whole system together actually gives so many people better cognition and prevention of cognitive decline. I love all of these protocols. And you go into such great detail in, in, in the book, too. It's such a biohacker's um, dream. <laughs> this is what we all all do and we all try to practice as much as we can. You mentioned autophagy. Now, in, in the biohacking space, we're all about autophagy and this is that cellular cleanup and recycling process. We all want to get in there and activate it through exercise and fasting and certain foods and supplements. Now, how big of a role in terms of our brain health does autophagy play? Is it, is it really big or is it just a small bit on top of everything else that we need to do? That's a great question. And the answer is different for each person. So for some people, it is big. And here's why. In fact, interestingly, there are some neuroscientists who are trying to develop treatments for neurodegenerative disease that just consist of enhancing autophagy. And that's because they believe that these diseases are caused by misfolding of proteins. So you now get and you see in all these diseases, Alzheimer's, uh, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body disease, all of these have one thing in common, which is that they do have aggregates of proteins in the cells. And you know, you see it with beta amyloid and they have it outside the cells as well. And you see it with phosphotau in Alzheimer's disease. And you see it with something called TDP43 in ALS and also in frontotemporal dementia. And of course you see it with Lewy bodies in Lewy body dementia and in Parkinson's disease and in something called MSA, multiple system atrophy. So all these different things have different aggregated proteins, but you can help yourself by helping to cleanse these. And so in that, those cases, you know, autophagy is helpful. Now, the problem that we see is that this disease is not limited. It's not that one little thing, just you, you, you misfolded a protein. To be fair, for people who have familial diseases where you're getting every, uh, you know, you're getting it in every single uh, a generation, um, it often will be from a mutation that enhances the misfolding. And in that case, autophagy, very important. For many of us, though, what's happening is we're getting this as a sporadic disease. It's not hitting many, many people in the family. It may hit our mother or father uh, and maybe you know one of us, but it's not like incredibly common. And so in those cases, there are insults that are actually causing the problem. And that's what had been you know, not appreciated enough. There are uh, various infections, um, change in your oral microbiome. Um, and I recommend to everyone, please get an oral DNA test, find out about your oral microbiome. There are specific pathogens that give you this increased risk for periodontitis. 
and they also give you an increased risk for cognitive decline. You're now creating an inflammatory state, which is not good for you. Of course, that inflammatory state also increases your risk for cardiovascular disease. So there are, again, there, there are so many of these things and it's gonna be different. So autophagy, very important for some people, much less important for others. What a great answer, thank you. And I'm glad you mentioned the oral microbiome because my next guest is a, a um, I guess, a biohacking dentist, let's say, and, and he talks, we're gonna talk a lot about our oral microbiome and how that can be a, a, a missing link for a lot of people. They're not looking at their or the, the their mouth and and the the things that they're doing uh, that may be contributing to their their poor health. So thank you for bringing that up. I wanted to ask. I found out via a genetic predisposition test that I have hemo- hemochromatosis type one gene. And I have a problem with uh, overload of iron in the body. Whenever I am going to the laboratory, always uh, too high iron levels. And I really try to avoid everything what I I suppose to be a lot of iron in it. No supplements, um, also the food and so on. And now um, I think that this could be also related to dementia, right? So I would like to ask you if you have any tips what to do in my case. Thank you so much. Sure. So first of all, as you already know, one of the common things to do for people with hemochromatosis, which is a relatively common problem, um, is to get blood drawn. So you actually remove the blood along with removing some of the iron. Uh, and that's a, it's a good way to go. And people do very well for many years. The second point to know is that the the association of hemochromatosis with dementia, although yes, there is a small, uh, there is not a huge, so people who have hemochromatosis are not at greatly increased risk for cognitive decline. It's a very modest change. So there are a lot of other things that would be much more worrisome as far as your cognition. So you should do very well. Third thing is I would, again, get a cognoscopy and get on the appropriate protocol to minimize your risk for cognitive decline. And then fourth, there are all sorts of um, approaches given the iron can give you oxidative damage to your cells. So there are things like glutathione that could be very helpful. And there are iron chelators. So again, work with an expert in hemochromatosis to minimize its impact. And you should actually do very, very well for many years. Thank you. Maybe one additional question. Uh, I started to take a supplement, HCL with pepsin, because, um, you know, I will be 58 and uh, most probably my body is not metabolizing proteins well. So I started to to take this supplement. Do you think that this might be a problem if uh, I have a problem with iron loading? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, And again, I I would talk to your physician about that, but it, it shouldn't be a problem. But I think the question is, why did you start taking it? Did you find out that your stomach acid is low? And of course, for many of us, it is low. But did you find out that yours is actually low? Yes. You did. You found out. Okay. So if yes, if your stomach acid is low, then um, it's fine to take some. Uh, often people will take uh, betaine, HCL, that sort of thing. Um, and do you take it with your meals? When do you take it? You want to be careful. You don't want to take it when Always there's no- with my meals. Yeah, that's good because that that can certainly hurt your your stomach lining. So you want to be careful 
Uh, because yes, if you take it at the wrong time or if you take too much of it, it can damage the lining of your stomach. So you want to just be careful about in making sure that there's, uh, you know, that you have something in your stomach when you're taking it. And you know, don't overdo it. Um, I, I usually recommend to people that if you're going to take these enzymes, you know, do it when there are things that you really need your proteases for. You know, you're taking something which cleaves proteins. So, you know, if you're eating a highly proteinaceous meal, for example, you may find that you don't need it when you're eating, for example, a salad, that sort of thing. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, I hope everything goes very well. It, it should. All right. So how are we doing? Yeah, we just, I'm going to let you go, but I have, I have uh, one, one question because uh, you mentioned in the book, and I found it very curious because uh, I have an interview coming up with uh, the founder of the Katsu Bands and oh, yeah. Stephen um, something, months, something that, oh, anyways, he, we're going to talk about the Katsu Bands, how that can be very helpful for people who are aging. You mentioned this in the protocol, and I was really surprised um, that that was. And there was one of the 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 survivors who talked about how she uses her katsu bands, and in, and this is katsu bands are, are blood flow restriction pace. People don't understand what that is. Originated in Japan to help people maintain muscle or increase human growth hormone or help patients recover from a variety of illnesses or issues. So how how are you? How is katsu helping the brain? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and you probably know, you know, some of the Olympic athletes uh, used katsu bands. Um, so they're out there. A lot of people are using them. Again, it's kind of part of the biohacking. We have so many people where they don't get very good blood flow to the brain. And so when you're restricting a little, you're doing a couple things. Number one, you're getting more bang for your buck. You can't do as many, uh, for example, as many curls. You can't do as much. And so you're actually getting, you're building muscle more quickly because your muscle is recognizing, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm not quite getting enough here. I better secrete some trophic su support here. Um, there, there is a signal that comes from your muscle that actually works on your whole system, including your brain. So you improve your blood flow. And of course, having more muscle makes you more insulin sensitive. There are insulin receptors on muscle cells. One of the most common contributors to cognitive decline is insulin resistance. And there are about 80 million Americans, about a quarter of the population that has significant insulin resistance. So we check this on everybody to see where, you know, you want to know, again, if you're biohacking, you want to know your HOMA IR. Is your HOMA IR 1.0 or are you up at 2.0, which is significant insulin resistance? Or are you up at 3.0, which is pretty bad insulin resistance? Part of the protocol is to restore insulin sensitivity. So interestingly, you know, our brains require one of two things, and we should be able to go back and forth between burning glucose and burning ketones. What happens though, as we get into our 30s, 40s, 50s, we lose both of those. You lose the ability to metabolize glucose because of insulin resistance, because of high carbohydrate diets. Now, the problem is because of that, your insulin is going up. It's high, which is part of the insulin resistance. So you're now churning out the insulin. The high insulin prevents your system from making ketones. So now you've lost both. So when I see people who have cognitive decline, I consider it an emergency. They are low on their energetics for their brain. We want to restore the insulin sensitivity and restore the ability to, uh, to burn and make ketones. 
And so the katsu bands help both on the side of the blood flow and on the side of the insulin sensitivity. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it was really confused. Well, you're restricting blood flow. So how is that getting to the brain? So I appreciate that explanation. We'll be talking about you for sure <laughs> in our interview. Thank you Another so much. Another big one to remember is EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy. And again, so many of us will have incomplete support for our brain because of the blood flow and because of the oxygenation. Uh, and so again, there's another one that can be very helpful. There are so many things, again, that everyone can do to get optimal cognition and to keep optimal cognition. Mm, thank you. It's so detailed in the book. And I really encourage everyone to get all of the books. I've read them all. I think they're fabulous. They're such great guidance. And you'll see how people are actually putting this into place and you'll get inspired. And, and there's so many more things. I would love to have you on again to talk a little bit more detail about the specifics on how to get into a, the protocol and, and, and things like that. So I so am so appreciate you staying up late for us. I want to let you go to bed. I if I'm excited about the documentary, please. Um, I'll, I'm sure it it will be. I will find out <laughs> through the we'll biohacking circles. I, yeah, I don't have a release date. As soon as I know when it's coming out, I'll let you know. Please let us know, and we will we will shout it from the rooftops for you as well. And the study as well. I'm excited to see how the new study goes. So keep us posted with that. If anyone wants to find out more information, you are all over the place. You are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm going to have links uh, to find you always at Dr. Dr. Dale Bredesen, as well as ApolloHealthCo.com. That's where I think it's a fabulous resource where people can find support groups and, and health coaching and just more details. All your books are there too. Um, there's, um, there's the the practitioner. I think if anyone's listening and they want to become a practitioner. There's so much support there. Is there anywhere else that I've missed of anywhere we can well else to find you? Uh, there's some stuff on YouTube as well, but yeah, I think you've hit the, the highlights and thank you so much, Zora, for having me on. Thanks everyone for the questions. And I hope that everyone will uh, successfully biohack and prevent cognitive decline. Look, we, you know, this, this should be a rare problem, cognitive decline. And if we all do the right things, it will be a rare problem. Oh, thank you for giving us hope. Thank you for all the research that you do. And we hope to have you on again very soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Zora. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.